Wildwood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you have been with us this summer, you also know that we have been walking through the book of Ephesians. And for the last number of weeks, the last 12 weeks, we have been walking through uh, this great letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And when Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus, he wanted to communicate to them that because they were in Christ, that God had packed within them every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And God had placed those blessings there so that they would be blessed, but also so that they would draw upon those resources as they lived out their Christian lives. And as we've seen over the last 12 weeks, those blessings and promises were not just for one church and one community, but they are for us as well who are in Christ. And so we have walked through this study over the last number of weeks. And this morning, we're going to be uh, concluding our study by looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20 in part 12 of this series. But before we open up and, and look at Ephesians 6 together, I want to just reflect a little bit about life, and I want to invite you to, to kind of explore your, your memories of your past for just a moment. And I want you to think back to the time before you began to drive. Now, some of you in this room are like, that doesn't take a lot of effort for me because I'm not currently driving all right, so you guys get off a little easy today, if that describes you. For others of you, it doesn't take much effort. You can just go back one or two or three or four or five years, and you can think back to your time before you were driving. But for others of us, I would include me in that group, I learned to drive you know, back when Pluto was a planet, okay? It, is, it was a while ago whenever I learned to drive, and, and maybe you were in that boat too. And it was just a different era of driving a car, wasn't it? Uh, back then. I mean, you think about the fact that back in, in, in the 80s and the 70s, cars were all equipped with this great thing called a seatbelt. But did people actually wear it? Well, a lot of times, no, right? I, I remember as a kid going on vacations, I distinctly remember this, and I would lay down on any flat surface I could find in the big Bonneville, whether it was the seat, the, the back dash, you name it. I would just lay down. Now, what, what are our kids traveling now? like shark cages. I don't know what they're in. They, they're in all kinds of heavy machinery and equipment. That's the world that we live in now. But back then, seatbelts were a little different. Though cars were equipped with them, not everybody used them. But I learned to drive right on the hinge of that time, right about the time that the seatbelt laws were being passed. And it was, you know, in the best interest of the driver's ed instructors to try to convince us of our need to wear seatbelts. And how did they do that? If you learn to drive in that era of your life, how they do that? Well, they did it by showing us these terrible movies of, of awful car accident after car accident after car accident to convince us of the power uh, that the vehicle that we were driving uh, held and the protective measure of the seatbelt. And they talked about it all the time. And, and basically, they, they scared us into a reality where we clicked that seatbelt shut. And even though every car was equipped with them, not everyone wore them until we realized uh, the dangers that were out there. I was thinking about that today because I was thinking about how Paul concludes his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 6, 10 to 20. See, in those verses, Paul says that every Christian is equipped with not a seatbelt, but with armor, with spiritual armor that God has packed within us. He has placed them inside of us the moment that we trusted in Christ. God has given us armor. And yet, many times, 
we don't appropriate that armor. Many times we don't get it out. Many times we don't put it on. Many times we don't click it closed. And why is that? Well, it's because a lot of times we are lulled into thinking that the Christian life is really a playground when in fact it's a battleground. And so what Paul does at the end of the book of Ephesians in chapter 6 is he, he does what my driver's ed instructor did. He gives us the sobering reality of the spiritual battle that is waging around us with the hopes that we would click on the armor that God has provided. And the hope today is that we would be inspired to do the same as we look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 10. And, and what we're going to see today, really, is we're going to see three things as we walk our way through this last section of the book of Ephesians. Three things that relate to the spiritual armor that God has given us and why it's important for us to put it on. The first thing we're going to see in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 is this. We need to understand the enemy. We need to understand the enemy. You know, Paul begins in verse 10, and he says this. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Strong, strength, and might, all different words, all unique words, all synonyms talking about power. In other places in the book of Ephesians, in other places in the New Testament, this is very powerful power. This is talking about resurrection kind of power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. He's talking about here in chapter 6, verse 10. And he says that this incredible power is something that we need something we need to be strengthened by. He's going to go beyond talking about our need to be strengthened, and he's going to say we need to be strengthened so that we can stand. From verses 11 to 14, four different times, he talks about our, our need to stand. Verse 11, he says that we may be able to stand. The beginning of verse 13, that we might be able to withstand in the evil day. The end of verse 13, that we might stand firm the beginning of verse 14, stand therefore. There is, there's something going on that requires us to need intense spiritual power. There is something going on that requires us to need to stand firm. There's something that's trying to knock us off our mark. Paul wants to make sure that we're aware of it. Before he ever talks about the provision that God gives to protect us, he wants us to make sure that we understand that the stakes. He wants us to make sure that we understand the the battle that, that is going on. I, I was thinking about that today. He goes to such lengths to show us the battle is going on so that we would take it seriously. This last summer, my family went to Colorado for a little bit, and one of the things we did in Colorado was we whitewater rafted. If you ever whitewater rafted, uh, it's, it's an interesting process of onboarding when you go to whitewater raft. They give you equipment. They give you, uh, you know, clothing. They give you special life jackets. They, they make sure those life jackets are secure. They give you a helmet. They, they give you a long form that you have to sign here and here and here and here and here so that you wouldn't sue them no matter what happened. And at the end of that, they say, you know what, but this is a really safe trip. Now, why do they do that? Well, they do that because it might not be a safe trip. They do that because the river is really powerful. And because the river is really powerful, they want to make sure that you're aware of the power of the river so that you take seriously and use the armor that they give you. And in the same way, that's what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, hey, before I'm going to talk to you about how God protects you, you need to know that there's a real battle that's going on. Well, who's that battle against? A lot of options, right? 
ask you before we even look at the passage, what are the, who are your enemies? Some of you are, are looking at somebody in the room right now. Don't do that. Keep your head down. Um, others of you are thinking of, of somebody else. You're, you're thinking of a neighbor, a, a friend, a coworker. You're thinking of a circumstance or a situation, an illness, a financial problem. Those are your enemies. You've got all of these, these things that we would detail as these are the enemies of our lives. Some of them have names and faces. Some of them have copays. All of them are, are problems. And yet, Paul doesn't say that our enemy is those things. Paul doesn't say your enemy is sitting next to you. Paul doesn't say that your enemy is your neighbor. Paul doesn't say that your enemy is your circumstance. What does Paul say? Verse 11, our enemy is the devil. He just mentions it. You know, in our world today, sometimes it's easy for people to forget that the devil's real. We think that it's just some little cartoon figment of our imagination, you know, somebody in a red suit, pitchfork, sitting on our shoulder, whispering things in our ear, kind of cute might dress up at Halloween in, in a costume and, you know, something to be taken lightly or in jest. This is, this is the world in which we live, that Satan's not even real. But in Ephesians chapter 6, Satan is very real and is described as our enemy, an enemy that is scheming against us, an enemy that desires to divide us, an enemy that desires to devour us, to discredit us, to tear us down. Paul says that our enemy is the devil. He underscores that in verse 12 by saying that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against our neighbor. Our battle is not against another believer. Our battle is not against an unbeliever. The ultimate battle that we face is against Satan. Now, Satan is unique in that he is not like God. I mean, he's not unique. We're all not like God. Satan wants to be, but he's not. That means that he can't be every place at every time. Since Satan can't be every place at every time, if he is really to be the enemy of you and the enemy of me, then, then he would need some help, wouldn't he? And Satan has help with other fallen angels who have followed Satan in his disobedience and are rebelling against God. They're rebelling against God by trying to take out and attack Jesus and his followers even today says in verse 12, this army of satanic forces is it's called this way. It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan and his minions are our enemy. They are coming after us. They want to divide us. They want to devour us. They want to discredit us. You know, we are tempted to think that our enemy is another person when, in fact, our enemy is Satan. Now, it's important for us to make, it that, make a distinction about that. There are a lot of things that feel like our enemy. You, you, you know, you, if you're a sports fan, you might think that the opposing team is your enemy. Um, there are times that you compete against them, those kinds of things. This isn't talking about just a general statement. What Paul is saying is that the enemy that he's referring to is the enemy of the church, the enemy of the expansion of the gospel. It's the enemy against the building up of the body of Christ. That enemy is Satan. It's not your friend. It's not your neighbor. It's not the circumstance or the situation that you're facing. It's, it's, it's Satan himself. He is our enemy. Now, there are some implications of that, one of which that I take just by watching the news. If you, have you been watching the news lately? 
You've been watching about what's happening in the world right now? Uh, my, my heart is breaking over what's happening in, in Western Iraq right now, where the Islamic State is, is moving into that area and they are, are giving a demand to followers of Christ in that area, you know, convert or die. Beheadings, crucifixions, rapes, all kinds of terrible things happening in that part of the world right now. It is, it is very possible for us as we look at that unfold to think that the enemy is the Islamic State. And when we think that way, we begin to think that what we really need is another flesh and blood solution. If the problem is flesh and blood, if the problem is the leaders of the Islamic State, then what we need is a flesh and blood solution. What we need is for the United States government and other governments to come in and intervene and to bomb and to send troops and, and to provide some alleviation of suffering. And you know what? I, I'm glad that our government is doing that. I'm glad that there are others who are joining in that effort. It's not a bad thing that they're doing that. But there's something bigger going on than just people being persecuted. The enemy is not the Islamic State. You know who the enemy is in that situation? Satan. You know who the members of the Islamic State are? People under his control. You know what the members of the Islamic State need? They need Jesus. They need forgiveness from their sin. This book was written by a man that persecuted and killed Christians. But by the grace of God, his heart was changed. Paul wasn't the enemy, Satan was. And God rescued Paul's heart, but Satan kept on his mission, and he's working it right now today with the Islamic State. They're the enemy, or the, Satan is the enemy, even in situations like that. It gives us a different way of understanding world events. It gives us a different way of praying. We need to pray for those believers that they would remain strong. We need to pray for the Islamic State, not that they would just cease their violence. We can certainly pray for that, but we can also pray that they would come to know Christ. Because the enemy is Satan, and he's real. You know, the enemy against you as you are living out your life on mission with Christ is Satan as well. He wants to divide you from each other. He wants to discredit you by tempting you into sin. And yet, in the midst of this battle, when we understand that this is our enemy, then we are more ready to engage and put on the protection that God offers. Because not only are we called to understand our enemy, but we're also called to unpack the armor, to unpack the armor. We see this in verses 13 through 17. Paul begins and he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. He's going to use an analogy here. He's going to use a picture. He's going to say that God has packed within us an armor, but it's not a, a physical armor that we can see. It's a spiritual armor that surrounds us. But he uses the analogy of armor for a couple of reasons, I think. One reason why Paul picks this analogy of armor is because of his present circumstance. You know where Paul was when he wrote this? He was imprisoned. Verse 20 tells us that he was in chains. Well, what was he chained to? He was chained to somebody wearing a Roman soldier's uniform. And as Paul sat there and looked at this person in a Roman soldier's uniform, he started thinking, you know what? I got better equipment than he does. Let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about the protection and the provision that we have in Christ. 
And he begins using what he sees as a reminder of the provision and protection that is offered in Christ. And this was also an appropriate analogy because anyone living in the Roman Empire at that time would have been familiar with the uniform of a Roman soldier. They were everywhere, including in the city of Ephesus. And so the Roman soldier's uniform becomes an appropriate analogy for understanding the protection that we have in Christ. Well, what is that protection? What is that armor that we're called to put on? Verse 14 begins to tell it to us. First thing it says is that we can fasten on ourselves the belt of truth. When a Roman soldier would go into battle, they would, they would take their, their tunic or their robe and they would pull it up and they would attach it to their belt so that they would be able to run more swiftly, so that they would be able to fight more freely. They would use their belt as an anchor for their robe. Their, robe, their, their, their belt also would provide an anchor for the breastplate that they would wear, their, their armor, their, the belt would anchor that down. The belt was also the anchor or the place where their sword would, would hang. The belt was a very important piece of equipment for the Roman soldier because it became the anchor on which everything else was attached. And Paul writes and says that we also have in our spiritual armor an anchor to which everything else is attached, and that anchor is truth. I think it's such a a powerful thing. He doesn't say that our our anchor for our protection is found in in our hope. He doesn't say that our anchor for our protection is found in our wish. He doesn't say that our anchor for our protection is found in the strength of our belief. He says that the anchor for all of our protection is found in truth. In other words, Jesus wasn't just a nice idea. He really was the Son of God. He really did come down to this earth. There's truth in that. He he really did die on the cross for our sins. He really was buried in a tomb. And three days later, he really did rise from the grave. That's truth. And that's the anchor upon which everything else is based. The person of Christ is true. We, we, we base our hope on him, not on just some nice belief. I, you know, this summer you may have watched some World Cup. I know I watched a little World Cup this summer. Uh, one of the things that happened in the World Cup is we all got excited about Team USA, right? We were excited about Team USA, and there was even a little song or a little chant that came out to help Team USA get really excited. And, and it was this little chant that was like, you know, we believe that we will win. We believe that we will win. We believe that we will win. And it was, it was really great. But then what happened? Did we win? No, we didn't win. Um, did we sing the song? Yes. Did people really believe that we had a chance? Yes. Did we? No. And that's not a knock on U.S. soccer. They, they played valiantly. But there was no truth in it. It was just a wish. It was just a hope. Here's the thing, folks. There are people sitting in churches all over the world today who think that, that the depth of our protection is just based on a wish or a hope. They're just gathering together. We're singing songs, and we're going like, you know, I, I, I wish, I hope, 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 I wish, I hope. We have something much stronger upon which to base our protection. We have the truth of Jesus Christ who he is, what he has done as the anchor for our soul. We put on the belt of truth. Second thing he says, we put on the breastplate of righteousness. Roman soldier would put on a a breastplate. It would cover their torso front and back. It would protect all of the vital organs. Very important piece of armor to put on. 
Paul says that as believers in Christ, we also have a protective breastplate that protects our vital organs and allows us to have spiritual life, and that protection is found in righteousness. If God is holy, then He desires holiness from His people. And what we have in Christ is we have His righteousness protecting us, His righteousness covering us so that we might relate to a holy God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says it this way. It says that God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. We are protected in our vital organs by the righteousness of Christ that we might have a relationship with God. Satan wants to come after us and discredit us and discount us and tell us about why our sin would make it impossible for us to ever be accepted by a holy God. And and Jesus says, hey, let me cover you in my righteousness to protect you from that attack. And as we live out our lives, we imitate that righteousness. We we follow him. We live in obedience so that we don't have chinks in our armor. Not that they would take us out and remove us from eternal life if we're trusting in Christ, but it removes ammunition from Satan when we live a life of righteousness. He says that we put on a belt of truth. We put on a breastplate of righteousness. Verse 15, we we put on shoes, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, the Roman soldier would have worn a particular kind of sandal that would have nails driven through it. They were, they were driven not from the bottom up into their foot. That would have been really painful. They were driven from the top of the shoe down so that the nail was exposed on the bottom, kind of like old school golf shoes. And the Roman soldier would wear those so that if they were on uneven terrain and difficult circumstances, they would be able to stand firm in the midst of the battle. Paul says that we also have shoes that allow us to stand firm in the midst of the battle, and those, those shoes that help us to gain traction are found in the fact that we have peace with God. And what made us to have peace with God was Jesus' death that satisfied the wrath of God, and that's the good news known as the gospel. And when we realize the peace that we have with God, it allows us to stand firm as we weather attacks on this earth. Furthermore, Romans chapter 10 tells us that how beautiful are the feet of those who bring and share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how appropriate that the peace of the gospel are the shoes that anchor us in the midst of life's battle. Both as we live in light of it as well as as we share it with others, it gives us stability. Part of the armor that God has given us to put on, peace with God. Verse 16, he talks about a shield of faith. Roman soldier would have had a very important piece of equipment that was their shield. The shield would have been made of of wood, but it would have been covered in an animal hide or in leather that was soaked in water before the Roman soldier went into battle. And these shields were designed in such a way that the soldiers could link them together. In other words, there was more strength in numbers because they could get together with soldiers on the front line linking their, their shields together, soldiers behind putting their shields up on top, making an impenetrable defense against the attack of the enemy. And the attacks that would come against a soldier with a shield would have been pretty intense. One of the things that was common in warfare in that time was take an arrow and to dip it in tar or pitch and to set it on fire and then to shoot it so that even if it stuck into a shield, the shield would catch on fire burning the one who was holding it. The Romans were smarter than that. A Roman shield was dipped in water so that when the fiery dart hit the shield, it was extinguished. 
In the same way, Paul says that in our relationship with God, in the protective armor that he has given us, that God has given us a shield that is called faith. In other words, as Satan fires fiery darts at us, we can believe the truth because Satan's darts are ultimately lies. You know, earlier I was talking about who you might think your enemies are. Who, what are the sources of your biggest struggle? You know what, what Satan likes to do? We come up with a long list of people and circumstances and situations and those kinds of things. You know, you know what Satan does with those things, those irritations, those sources of conflict? He takes them and he weaponizes them. He spreads just enough lie on them to set them on fire and he shoots them at us and tries to take us out. Try to take our focus off of Christ. Try to divide us among one another. Try to cause us to fall into sin. Paul writes and says that we have a defense against that kind of lying attack of Satan, and that defense is by believing the truth instead of Satan's lie. By faith, we say that God loves us even if our life is difficult. By faith, we say God is with us even if we might feel alone. And part of that is, is enhanced just as a Roman soldier would gather with other soldiers to provide an increased defense Our faith is stronger in numbers. When we gather as a community of believers and we lock our shields together in faith, we're able to extinguish more of the enemy's fiery darts because you've got my back and I've got yours. See, Paul writes and says that there is a shield of faith that we can pick up. Next thing he talks about is the helmet of salvation. Obviously, a helmet was an important piece of equipment something that the soldier would put on to protect their head while they were in battle. Paul says that there is something that protects our head as well. There is something that allows us to maintain life in the midst of battle, and that's this helmet, which is salvation. The fact that we have not only this life, but the life to come. The fact that God has said we are His and, and He will never separate from us, that gives us a protection as we face life in, in battle in this Christian life. We've been given a helmet of salvation, and a helmet goes on the head. And I think part of what Paul was also getting at here is that what the gospel does, what our salvation does, is it also initiates a process of the transforming of our minds. That as we put on the helmet of salvation, we are embracing the new thoughts, the new ideas, the new desires that are found in Christ. Then lastly, he talks about how there is also a sword of the Spirit, Roman soldier would have had a a little sword, double-edged, that would have been right there on their belt. This sword would have been used in hand-to-hand combat uh, to protect them, but also could be used in an offensive measure uh, to ward off an enemy, to take him out. In the same way, it says that the believer is given a sword to be able to fight Satan. That sword, it says, is the Word of God. What does it mean to have the Word of God as a weapon of protection for us with which we can fight Satan. I think the best example of that is found in Jesus' temptation by Satan in his temptation before he began his earthly ministry. Satan comes and offers Jesus all kinds of things. How does Jesus respond? He responds by quoting back to Satan God's Word. When Pastor Bruce preached through this uh, spiritual armor a number of years ago, he said something that has always stuck with me in this passage. He said, 
You know, Satan is not omnipotent. Satan doesn't know everything, and he doesn't know things that are in our minds. Satan only knows what he sees and what he hears. So because of that, when we want to battle Satan, it's important that we read God's Word out loud or that we recite it out loud, reminding us of His truth. That is something that we can do uh, in, our, in our spiritual lives. You know, one of the things we do when we gather as believers in this setting is we read God's Word aloud. There's strength in that. Together, we're saying, this is true. The songs that we sing, we say, that is true. Regardless of how I feel, regardless of the difficulty of my week, regardless of my temptation to succumb, this is true. Those songs are speaking forth truth. We use the Word of God in song and in written form as an offensive weapon against the lies of Satan. You see, we are to unpack this armor. We're to put it on. We're to click it in, realizing the danger of the enemy. We do that by faith. It's a great prayer to to, to pray through, great uh, section of God's Word to meditate on if you're feeling under attack today. Third thing we're going to see, though, is this. We can unite in prayer. We can unite in prayer. Now, this is a very appropriate way for Paul to end this. See, if if our fight was against flesh and blood, we come up with flesh and blood solutions. But if our fight is in the, the, the heavenly realms against spiritual beings, then if we are to wage that war, we must wage it with spiritual means. And we do that by being dependent upon the Lord in prayer. And so he goes through this call to prayer in a number of ways. Verse 18 says, we're to pray at at all times. Are we to pray some of the time? Yes. Because if you pray some of the time, then you're on your way to praying at all times. We're to pray at, at all times. We're to pray in the Spirit. What does it mean to, to pray in the Spirit? Well, one of the great gifts that God has given us through the work of the Holy Spirit is to help make our emotions and thoughts understandable to God. We, we, we can know that we are fully known. The, the Spirit is said to fill in the gaps. We all have felt things before so deeply that it's hard for us to even articulate them into words. But the Spirit of God can translate that to God, that He just understands and knows because as we pray The Spirit makes sure that God understands all of what we're going through. That encourages me to pray. Doesn't it encourage you to pray, to know that you're fully known by God? We're to pray at all times. We're to pray in the Spirit. Verse 18 continues and says that we're to lift up all prayer and supplication. This means that we're to pray with our eyes open and with our eyes closed. We're to pray on our knees and we're to pray standing up. We're to pray when we only have a short time to pray. We're to pray when we have a long time to pray. We're to pray in the morning, we're to pray at night, we're to pray prayers of thanksgiving, and we're to pray prayers of asking God for things. We're to simply to pray all different kinds of prayers. We're to live a life of steady dependence upon Him. It says that we're to keep alert with all perseverance as we pray. You know, there's times when it's easy for us to pray. If you have a loved one on the operating table and you're sitting in the waiting room, you're probably praying. It's not hard to remember to pray at that time. But what about when things are going well? Or what about when you're in a little different setting? Sometimes we can forget to pray. Paul says, hey, keep on the alert. 
No matter what your circumstances, at all times, be alert and continue to be in this attitude of prayer because whether you realize it or not, we're living out our Christian life on a battleground. He goes on and he says that our prayers should not be for us only, but they should also be for all the saints. We're to pray for all of the saints. That means we're to pray for each other. Paul wanted prayer for himself, and all of us should be lifting one another up in prayer. It's easy for us to pray only about our own needs, but Paul reminded us to pray for the needs of others. But he continued on and gave a specific of what we're to pray for with others, not just their physical needs, but also for their spiritual ministry. He says, pray also for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul said, I want you to pray for me and I want you to pray for my ministry. And why is that? Because Paul knew that his ministry was far more than just activities, agendas, and plans. It was far more than just showing up and and doing what he was naturally gifted to do. He needed God to work. He needed God to to go before him. He needed God to open the hearts of people. He needed God to, to beat back the enemy of Satan. And so understanding that and knowing that, he was committed to going before the Lord in prayer, and he encouraged them to pray for him as he was praying for them for opportunity to to share the gospel. Now, what do we do with this? How's our life of prayer? Honestly, my, my life of prayer is not what I want it to be. And yet God calls me to pray. And understanding this battle is, is a great reminder to that end. Francis Folks says this. He says, man very easily takes his difficulties to his fellows instead of to God. Can you relate to that? Man very easily takes his difficulties to his fellows instead of to God. I think that's because we assume that our difficulties are against flesh and blood. And yet our enemy is Satan. Understanding that ought to drive us to our knees in prayer. You know, we're getting ready to start a a ministry year here at Wildwood. Next Sunday, the 17th of August, is our kickoff Sunday. Uh, We have promotion for all of our kids in children's ministry. We've got a number of things going on. Uh, It's an exciting time and season uh, here as a church. And, you know, as we head into that season, um, I'm just so convicted by this passage that we should do more than just play, you know, uh, plan and and show up and and execute based on the gifts that God has given us. We should do those things, but we also should hit our knees in prayer. And so we have organized a time of prayer next Sunday morning at 8.45 a.m. I know that's early, and I know that'll dial some of you out because you've got other things. Don't feel bad if if you can't make it, but I would just like to invite you to join uh, myself and, and a number of our staff and elders in the gathering hall out here at 845. We're going to pray for 15 minutes from 845 to 9. You're like, I've heard that before. I've heard about the 15-minute prayer meeting that goes two hours. Uh, don't worry. It, it's 15 minutes. We're going to start at 845. We're going to end at 9. And what we're going to do in that time is we're just going to pray for God to, to work in our community. We're going to pray these things for Wildwood Community Church, and we'd love to have you join us next week for that. Second thing is I would like to encourage you uh, to answer the question of who are you praying for? Not for their physical needs, but, but who are you praying for their ministry? And if you don't have somebody that you're regularly praying for their opportunities to share Christ, 
I would challenge you to, to find someone to begin praying for. They might be sitting right beside you right now. They might be sitting on the aisle in front of you. But begin praying for the ministry of somebody else because the battle requires that prayer. And the next thing is, who's praying for you in your ministry? If you don't have somebody who is praying for you and your ministry, your opportunity to share Christ, I would encourage you to find somebody to do that. That person might be sitting beside you or in front of you or behind you, but begin to, to pray for one another for the ministry that God has called us to. Because we can unite in prayer. Now, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up because they're going to lead us in a closing song here in just a moment. But before we, we sing together to close out our, our study of the book of Ephesians, I, I want to just remind us of something. You remember back in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, we talked about how all of the blessings that God has packed inside of us have been placed there because we are found in Christ, because we have placed our faith in Christ. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And what's fascinating when I look at the way Paul ends the book in chapter 6, verses 10 to 20, is we see that when we talk about being clothed in the armor of God, it's actually something that, that places us being clothed in the person of Christ. Listen to these, these parallels here. We're called to put on the belt of truth. Well, Jesus is our truth, John 14, 6. We're called to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Well, Jesus is our righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. We're called to put on the, the shoes of the gospel of peace. Well, Jesus is our peace, Ephesians 2, 14. We're called to take up the, the shield of faith. We'll, we're reminded that Jesus is faithful in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. We're called to put on the helmet of salvation. Well, Jesus is our salvation, Luke 2.30. We're called to wield the sword of the Word of God. Well, Jesus is the Word of God, John 1, 1 and 14. See, because we are clothed in Christ, we don't have to fear. And we can stand firm in the midst of a spiritual attack.